Oh, hello, hello once again. Thank you so much for taking a little bit of interest, or maybe a lot of interest, in our latest edition of Which Car Weekly, the podcast that looks at all of the things we didn't quite have time to get round to at our various mastheads at Barrow Media, and we amass some of my favourite and the greatest minds in journalism and all things automotive to just recap on some of the stuff that either was just a little bit too irreverent or risque to either put on the pages of our magazines or on our websites or our various other media. Joining me today, I've got a couple of fabulous personalities. The uh, the equally fabulous Scott Newman is not with us today because I believe he's waiting for a tradesperson. Story of everyone's life. But in his place, I'm very happy to welcome uh, senior writer for Which Car, Dave Bonici. Thank you, Dan. It's an absolute pleasure to be here for yeah, us. Yes. It's, and it's, well, it's a pleasure for your, for your debut on Which Car Weekly. We hope it's the first of many. Um, and also, of course, we have the fabulous Andy Enright, deputy editor of Wheels Magazine. Thank you so much for being here. Splendid. On today's episode, tackling Target Tasmania in a taut tin top, unravelling China's auto effect and taking the stress out of teaching a learner driver. What does that all mean? Nobody knows yet, but we will in the next half an hour. Let's get straight into it. First thing I want to talk about is, as per usual, it's just starting to become a regular thing now, Andy, where we just say, where have you been now? Which country? Which airline? Uh, Thankfully, to keep all our green with envy levels in check, uh, it was only across the ditch to Tasmania this time, wasn't it? Yes, I haven't had to uh, get the passport beaten up in any specific (laughs) way. Um, Across to Tasmania for the first three days of Targa. Oh, um, yes. Which is something I've always wanted to do. It's even from the UK, we know this event. It's got this semi mythical status. Yeah. And uh, it was my first time at Targa, and it is a cracking event. Uh, I recommend this to everybody. So even people who have a mild to no interest in cars? Absolutely, yes. Mild to no interest to cars is a great starting point. Um, Now, let's just give it some context. You were there with the good people at uh, Hyundai. Yes, um, I was driving a Hyundai i30N, the fastback version of that, the one with the slopey back and the revised front suspension. Um, Yes. Very, very good car for Targa. Yeah, well, I think we've had, uh, certainly I've had a blast in the hatchback version, which of course is a rival to the Golf R, effectively. Um, I've not got in the fastback version, but mechanically it's pretty much identical. And the reason that Hyundai chose Targa Tasmania as a part of their launch activity is because you can drive it on the road in pretty much race conditions, can't you? Yes, yeah. Um, The reason why I'm here after three days competing and the Targa event is still going on is not because I drove one into a ditch or anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) My my cohort of journalists were there for three days and then another crew took over. But uh, we were in what's called the touring category, which limits your top speed to 120 kilometres an hour. Oh, is that all? Yes, and that might sound a bit lame uh because you know you're there to drive the wheels off the car basically but the thing is with targa the stages are so tight that it's just twists and turns and hairpins and all sorts of things coming at you that most of these things you cannot drive it at 120 so you're driving the car absolutely flat out through anything that looks like a a corner yeah i think i think the general rule is you can drive at 120 but the next thing that happens is you hit a tree Yes, yeah. So, that's... so you can by all means try, but you you won't last very long at that speed. And having seen this year's event, hitting uh, trees and rock faces and things is 
fairly easily done. A lot, <laughs> a, a lot of very expensive cars have fallen off. Um, we, we saw a, a Porsche 911 Turbo sitting at a rakish angle up a up a bank with oh, really? half of its front sawn off. Yeah, and um, yeah, it can really, really bite you. There was one stage that went through a, a beach forest that the whole road was just covered in this horrible moss that had like the consistency of hagfish slime or something <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the guy just skating just give around give me a moment i'm just googling hagfish slime i'm not sure if this is going to come up with anything pg but uh but yeah it's a really really great way to get into that that feel of motorsport and that real rush of competing in a in a tarmac rally it costs for the tour around four grand for your for you and your navigator, and then you've got a higher thing called a rally safe, which is a GPS unit that is excellent. Mm-hmm. It, made in it, made in Tasmania. Yep, yep. A very clever fella called Stephen Sims invented the rally safe in 2010, um, and it shows you exactly how fast you're going. It notifies race control if you've had a, a prang, and it also notifies slowly. race control if you've broken the speed limit. Ah, oh, yes, there was a certain um, Italian <laughs> manufacturer who entered nine cars this year, and all nine of them incurred a speeding violation on day one. <laughs> two, two of them so egregious that they were on the boat on the way home oh, that wow, evening. Serious? Um, yeah, yeah. So wow. So, so yeah, the the big, big brother, brother yeah. is watching you all the time. So be on your best behavior but that is something that, that the rally organizers um do as part of an accommodation with the local police you know it's yeah. so that the event really polices itself if people are being stupid off they go um but the good thing about it is it is accessible once you've paid your entry fee for the touring event you don't need helmets you don't need roll cages fire extinguishers race suits all that stuff that that is a deterrent to people who you know, might not want to take that massive commitment into developing their own race car. Sure, and that really is, for many, the stumbling block with any um, amateur motorsport, isn't it? Is yeah. it? Once you get into that kind of territory, yeah. it becomes very expensive. And what you did nicely proves that you can turn up in a completely standard road-legal car oh, yeah. and enter a motorsport event. I mean, what other event in the world, for that matter, will allow you to do that yeah. without the cages and the harnesses and the extinguishers? Yeah, th- there were a few people there with... Well, quite a few people in the touring class with some very serious cars like GT2 RSs and Ferrari 488 Pistas, that sort of wow. thing. Um, so it's it's a real feast for the eyes when you stop for lunch and see all these things roll up. But here's the thing. To get the most fun out of the touring category, I think you need to be in something with no power. That you just <laughs> absolutely wring its neck throughout the whole event. You're not con- always worried about bumping through the speed limit. So... My recommendation for Targa, um, if you're thinking of entering next year, is track down something like a Suzuki Swift Sport or a Ford Fiesta ST. Yeah. That sort of vehicle that doesn't have a, a concussive top speed, but it will paint a huge grin on your face through what the What about, I mean, I 1985 Daihatsu Charade. That works for me. <laughs> Are, are you allowed to take old cars? Like, yes. There's no yeah. age limit? Or... No, well, yeah, they're, they're, I think that's the most notably, notably re- represented by Eric Banner when he binned his right, yeah. Falcon Coupe. Yes. That was Target Tasmania, wasn't it? I believe it was. That was yeah. a very old car that he just spent a huge <laughs> amount of money restoring. Yes, the beast. Whoops. Whoops. Yeah. Indeed. That's <laughs> Don't a, do that. That is a barge to be driving around on hagfish slime. Yes, <laughs> it, it yeah. is. There were things like XC Cobras and, all, and uh, Pontiac. GTOs, like massive things that sort of stretch into three postcodes that I was looking at thinking, what are you doing <laughs> what, with that? That is the worst possible thing. I know, Surely you I want know. short wheelbase, nice and nimble. Yeah, like yeah. you say, not too much power that yeah. can't get you into too much trouble. An MX-5, uh, a Toyota 86, is 
probably as fast as you ever want to yeah, perfect. really go. This goes back to, I mean, we've talked several times on Witch Car Weekly about the Nürburgring, obviously most notably yeah. because you were effectively a driving instructor there um, and had a very good little business going, doing exactly that. And the one and only time I've ever tackled the Nürburgring was in a very sensible 1.4-litre turbo front-wheel drive Hyundai. And that's exactly why I sit here with all my arms and legs attached. It's because I didn't try and go out in a 911 as my first car on the track. So great advice. Um, I just <laughs> I just uh, hope more people would take notice of that at, at Target Tasmania and not have, end up in I, the weeds. I have one final piece of advice, um, and that's the fact that our tour leader was leading the group in a 1.4. I believe, was it 1.4 or 1.6? But it was a bog-standard Hyundai i30, and the guy was absolutely driving the wheels off it, and it was a higher car. From uh, <laughs> so if you if you get a silver Hyundai i30 from from Launceston Airport, it feels a little bit tired. Um, yeah. That's Speaking why. of higher cars, while we just have a moment or two to talk about finish up this segment, and this is the way I I, I love which car weekly is it can go off in any tangential direction, and I hope it does. Um, last year we were doing a feature for Wheels Magazine, which was do you remember this when we put all of the you were one of the writers involved with this, Andy. We put all of the current hot hatches and affordable performance cars. Oh yeah, uh, on the track in Haunted Hills and also for a day on the road. Um, as part of our evaluation process, we got Renato Liberto, who is a very very good racing driver, mostly seen behind the wheel of a mid-engine yeah. Ferrari, and his job was to set a benchmark in both in talent and also a lap time so he would go out and get the very fastest lap he could, he could at the haunted hills in each of our i think it was 12 cars wasn't it we had out there before he did that though he decided what would be a good idea is just to do a few sighting laps in a car that wasn't one of the 12 and the car that he had to do that in was his higher holden commodore <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like good fun and that car went back with stories to tell i mean we just we thought we'll just turn a blind eye and just let him get on with it and i think he did about like six laps in the thing it came back it stank of brakes and tires and it was absolutely exhausted was it a zb commodore it no no it was the last of the uh, vfs okay so it was wonderful. It was great. That car going back. So isn't, as they say, the best the best off-road vehicle in the world is a hire car. It doesn't matter about the model and variant. It's Absolutely. just the fact that it's not yours. Paul Renato was looking after this uh, Italian manufacturer with dispirited driving. So I, I last saw him sort of head and hands gibbering in a corner somewhere in, a, <laughs> in Launceston. <laughs> wonderful. There you go, Target Tasmania. If you want an affordable way in to get a flavour of real motorsport, then that pretty much is it. Just don't end up in the weeds. No. A little bit later, I want to talk about uh, teaching people to drive. It's something that all of us in this room have either been doing or been on the receiving end of. And uh, there's a great article that went up on whichcar.com.au this week talking about that. And I just wanted to get a perspective from you guys on that. But we'll talk about it a bit later. Um, before that, Dave. Uh, we love to catch up with our various journalists when they've been at far-flung exotic parts of the world. You have recently come back from what was quite a long trip uh, to China, uh, and you were there courtesy of uh, Havel. Yes, Great War Motors and Havel. So. Yes, and actually they also have a brand out there called Way, don't and they? And Way as well, which is their no luxury way. brand. Oh, yeah. there it is. It wouldn't be a Witchcar <laughs> Weekly episode without a terrible pun. Thank you, Andy, for being the one the contributor this week. Um, Let's yeah, get it out of the way. What, yeah, that's right. Uh, excellent. What were you doing there? And, and yes, why? What were you driving? Well, we were, pro we were there for the Shanghai Motor Show, but we were sponsored by Great War Motors, which also owns Havel. And that was all part of their big reveal of their new 
dual cab ute, the great new great great oh, wall ute. That's right, because your trip was part of the, the Shanghai show, wasn't it? Yes. So the first couple of days were with pretty much Havel at their incredible facilities in a city called Baoding in China, and their factories. It's just out of this world. It's so big and so clean and so quiet. You could eat off the floor while they're making these SUVs. And Not recommended, but, you know, nice to know you could. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I wouldn't eat my dinner off any floor. You know? No, I don't even know why that saying ever happened. It's, it's, it's a, a weird, stupid idea. Yeah. But anyway, this factory, so everywhere you look around, there's something happening from the robots putting together the frames to these massive production lines. And you can see the cars come from nothing to pretty much come rolling out in just one, under one massive roof, which you'll probably see from space. Um, then we went to their test track, which is incredible, which includes this long, they built a motorway with signs and everything that, you know, and then they've got like very similar to hold improving ground with these cambered lanes, which you could do up to 280 kilometers an hour. Oh, cool. And we were doing up to about 180 in a F7 SUV, which is their new medium SUV. Yep. Um, the trouble was all the cars we tested won't be coming to Australia which was quite frustrating because they look good and there's a story to tell, but we won't be getting anything from Havel till about probably two, 18 months from now at the earliest. But we've already got a Havel range in Australia, don't we? Yes, <clears throat> and they're crap. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was waiting, waiting to, to broach this subject in, yes. in a kind of sensitive yeah, let, manner. Yeah, we should take a step back. I mean, we Havel doesn't have the greatest reputation in Australia. The H6, I think, was um, in one of our Comparo scored the 2 out of 10 mark. or the, Yeah, which Ouch. was the, uh, one of the lowest. And I think Ponch actually felt sorry for it and gave it 2 instead of 1. Oh, no. There are a lot of issues. I mean, it's a nice, well-presented car and all that, but there were just issues with their um, traction control. And but the key thing here is those cars that we have in Australia critically predate a moment of realisation for Havel, which is when they realised there is a market outside of China. Yes, and that, they also predate what China has now. So we've yeah. got first-generation models. They're already into their second and third generations, and what we'll be getting will be the third generation, probably not the H6, but their new one called the F7, which, you know, they didn't give us a massive uh, go in it, but it's... It, it, it's a quantum leap ahead. It, it the interior fit out is sensational. The it's one of the cleanest, good looking dashboards I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, whoever makes the seats for Havel and even Great Wall, uh, they're just top notch. The Chinese really value interior comfort. They and they like big, big rear seats. Uh, one of the reasons for that is they value family. So when they go to choose a car, it's not just about the driver. We're yeah. all about driver comfort and ride position. They want to make sure the family is well looked after in the back. For for us cynical old journalists, the Shanghai show used to be an opportunity to just point and laugh at the at the ludicrous knockoffs <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. But I was looking at your pictures this oh. year, and damn, there are some really good looking. Yeah, stuff and that's what there. look. And and then the Great Wall it was the same. You jump in that, you would think you're in a large SUV. So, you know, without pumping up their tyres, I think we shouldn't really judge those companies based on what we have in Australia because they have no, moved on. Not. And as you say, they've gone beyond catering for the Chinese market, which has matured a lot. People now are a decade into car ownership, and you know, it's not good enough to own a tractor. Yeah, um, they want better. So that's really happening. So I think. 
the growth of the you know they're a sleeping giant no doubt about it and they yeah. will do in 10 years what the koreans did in 25 i think if you need a little bit of uh, extracurricular reading or viewing then i would say go online have a look at a car dave was just talking about the uh, was it the f Seven. The F7, but then there's a luxury Havel car, the Way VV7. The VV7 is the one I was going to recommend yeah. having a look at. And if you want to go even further and look at a car which I think would do incredibly well in Australia, there's a car called an RS7. It's not an Audi, it's a Way, spelt W-E-Y. Y. Yep. Um, and it was a concept at the Beijing show two years ago. And that thing looks you don't even have to give it the context. You know, the thing we say so frequently, for a Chinese car, it looks great. Take that context away. No. Any car, this car looks fantastic. Unfortunately, and I, it would go so well here. Way is like a separate brand to have all, but it's pretty much a premium brand. Yeah. Um, only left-hand drive at the moment, but they're going to push into the US and Europe. That Those cars are designed by Phil Simmons, who was the designer of the Range Rover Velar, last genera- and the Range Rover Sport, and even the last generation Ford Fiesta, which was the biggest selling small car in Europe. Yeah, so very good looking car. its design pedigree is impeccable. But when um, we talk about when we talk about sales records in other parts of the world, you talk about, you know, numbers of SUVs sold and record breaking. You look at China, Havel is the number one selling SUV brand in China. They sell eight hundred thousand yeah. SUVs in China each year. Oh no, I think eight hundred thousand was just the the H six, their number one selling model. Yeah. So they sell nearly as many of one model as we nearly sell in all cars in Australia each yeah, year. Yeah, it's crazy. It's so, just yeah, berserk. You're increasingly seeing this from a lot of manufacturers who are drawing down their global offerings and saying, you know, we're just going to concentrate on the markets that matter to us, which is increasingly the US and China. Mm. But it is interesting. But at the same time, there's a massive domestic market in China. So there are going to the show now, you know, there are at least 50 Chinese car manufacturers. Several of those are state-owned, and what they do, they embark on partnerships with other companies and international companies. So I think Hyundai, Kia, they all have a stake in some of these. I think they're sort of where the US and UK car markets were in the 1930s, you know, like they have... Yeah, all these karma car manufacturers, which eventually whittle down over time. That'll happen in China. But what we're seeing is electrification is huge. Mm, Electric cars everywhere. All these startups, they don't have to worry about having 80 years worth of combustion powertrain experience. They can just chuck a few motors and say, here you go. Yep. But what you'll find, they'll get whittled down, they'll get bought out, but one might have a particular expertise over another. Did you, eventually, manage, did you manage to see a, a Dongfeng crazy soldier or a, <laughs> or a Geely rural nanny? No, I mean, those they're, they're really going out of that. Andy is just, uh, just you know, riffing nicely here. Those are actual model names. I know, yeah. you want to make fun of them, but then you go look at Geely Lincoln Co. with the most best-looking crossovers I've ever seen. And that's not an oxymoron anymore. No, you know, They not. are really desirable-looking cars and, you know, and they've got that Volvo expertise behind them and... So, as I say, you don't don't mock them anymore. But I think that's what would be interesting, what each company brings to the table and when they start getting together. 
with Absolutely. international things. So China has reached this point now where it, there's certainly not market saturation in its native m markets and segments, but it is looking outside its borders saying, well, potentially all we have to do is make a few changes in our standards because that realistically is what has, has um, snubbed any Chinese vehicle for, for most of the rest of the world is, is their production quality and safety standards. Now Havel has said, well, look, we can do a little bit better and these cars suddenly will sell in other parts of the world. And it's opened up quite literally, the rest of the global market. But that's the thing, and it's not just Phil Simmons they've bought in. They've got, you know, yeah. a powertrain expert from AMG Mercedes. and, yeah, and yeah. Mercedes. They've got Alfa Romeo interior designers and all this sort of thing. But it's just looking around China. It's, that's how the country is. They're not piss-farting around. We're, you know, we're talking about, oh, do we do this, do we... They just do it. Yeah, exactly. And it's probably at the breach of many human rights. Who knows? But you'll go through what was once a country town that's now the size of Adelaide or even bigger... You know, just towers everywhere, population of, you know, five million overnight. Mm. And they build all the roads and everything. And you think, where are the jobs? And they'll say, oh, they're going to build a factory here. Yeah. So before they and build the it. factory, they make sure everything's ready to go. I mean, here we put people in suburbs and then they've got to worry about catching a bus, which isn't there. Yeah, yeah, so yeah exactly right. We're catching bullet trains to to airport terminals. Yeah, it's nuts. It was... And Melbourne doesn't have a train that goes to the airport at all. Let alone a bullet train. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, but... The Chinese have never invented anything like the Chico Roll, so still, <laughs> still got some catching up to do. And we sort of ripped them off a bit with that. <laughs> they have done some wonderful things in within the company, uh, Great Wall, Havel and Way. Um, there are a number of things I found particularly fascinating. Um, uh, first of all, the uh, chairman of uh, Havel is a woman named, uh, uh, what's her name? Chairman, no, uh, CEO Wong. Is, it's not particularly surprising Chinese surname. Um, she is the most powerful woman in the automotive industry worldwide. Brilliant. We need more of that. We talk about all the CEOs we get in Australia and, and you know, with their position within the market. Most powerful woman in the world when it comes to cars in China. Brilliant. I don't believe that. I think it's Mary Barra because nothing is more powerful than a Barra. I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm afraid she has to take second fiddle here. Oh, okay. The other thing, um, the name Way. For the for the brand of car spelt W Y actually comes from another chairman in within the company, one of the founders. Um, his name is actually spelt W E I, and despite being a fabulously powerful individual and very influential and also very wealthy, he lives in one of the apartments where all of the the uh, workers do as well because he felt it was particularly important to get w among and understand the the core of his business. So he lives in one of the workers' apartments in among his people. There's a massive city near the factory. It is like all these high-rise buildings, and it's just people who work for Great Wall or yeah. for Havel. And he's in there. Yeah. And that's kind of like, to, to me, when I heard that, that was kind of, I found sort of the opposite of what I'd heard about the sort of social um, norms in China. Yeah. You know, where, but yeah, I thought that was a, a wonderful thing. And I, finally, I actually got to say hello to Jack. He looks 25. I don't know how old he is. I mean, he's obviously older, but he... I was, I really? Him. Yeah, he looked really... Wow, good skincare cool. regime. Very good. Well, in Baoding, it's the most polluted city in China, possibly the world. Well, that was going to be the last <laughs> thing I've, I've closed with, Dave. Yes, the unenviable record of, uh, yes, the most polluted. And this goes back to what you were saying, is that if the Chinese want to get something done with automotive and manufacturing and models and whatever, they just do it. And one of the, the net results of that is that it is the most polluted city in China. Which, which is strange. You don't see smokestacks anywhere. I don't know where that pollution comes from, but it's there. It's it's very noticeable. So you are going to get black lung at some point in the future, David? I think he's already got it. Yes, Andy, you get the black lung. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, excellent. Um, uh, there's a thing happening at the moment called Witch Car on television, and it is on Channel 10. If you haven't caught an episode of it yet, why the F not? <laughs> it's on somewhere between 3.30 and 4 on Sunday afternoons on Channel 10, and you get to see us doing basically our day job, which is the greatest thing in the world. Um, tune in again this Sunday afternoon. I think it's on 3.30 this week um, to see us doing, yeah, just fabulous things in cars. It's the Witch Car SUV Games. Ah, of course. Bonichiwa, it is. Um, yeah, so this this week's episode is we get a representative. Each of the witch car journalists gets a representative in the compact segment uh, SUV segment to try and establish why Australians love them so much. And do we come up with an answer? I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't want to say no because... You were there. You, I, we sort of do. You were in a cash Yeah, we do. There's no winner, but... We come up with an answer. Tune in I, yeah. this Sunday Spoiler afternoon alert. Channel 10 to find out. And if you can't catch it live, you can, of course, go to 10 Play and catch all our previous episodes there. Have you ever taught someone to drive? Or, perhaps more likely, you've been taught to drive at some point. I know all three of us here have. Um, but we put up an article this week on witchcar.com.au which talks about the best things and the, the, the most sensible way of teaching someone, perhaps a sibling, to drive. Uh, because I think it's largely regarded as one of the most, you know, alongside losing a family member at, or divorce, uh, teaching a sibling is one of the most stressful things you can do. Yes. So what well, I'd like I've, to I've do... lost a family member and I've been divorced and I've taught children <laughs> to drive. And yes, I'll put them up. I'll put them all three up there. And this is the second reason we wanted you on the show <laughs> this week, Dave, is because, yes, you are the most experienced when it comes to this subject. Um We've all learned to drive, and what I'd like to do is just talk about how that was uh, and your top tips on... Dave, obviously, you, you have um, raised a couple of daughters and you've, you've taught them both pretty much to drive. Um, but most importantly, and most, I, I'm most, most interested in how you learned to drive. Yeah, I learned to drive in my dad's HQ Kingswood, which had the steering like... Uh, or like that Alpha... What was it? That stupid little Alpha... Sports car we had. 4C. The 4C. The steering What's was worse. stupid about the 4C? It was stupid. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right, right. It, the steering was like that. It was like a tank. And um, so, you know, my dad patiently sort of let me drive that around, but pretty much take lessons. Okay. So, but I find with driving lessons, it's all about passing the test. And I think that's still the case, which isn't a bad thing, but I had a good instructor. And when we did the test, he was doing things like, um, I remember I was doing uh, reverse parallel parking yeah. and I was about to do something and I had the car in reverse and he's talking to the test and he's saying things you gotta be more forward with your kids, don't you? More forward and I'm put in drive. Oh brilliant. So he's you giving know. you like a, a code word. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> he's, he's just really chatting to the Vic Roads guy while oh, giving me all wonderful. this stuff. So that was a really good thing. So but I look, I've recently learned to fly as well. And I put them together and yes. you Really, it's like anything. Most of the learning is afterwards. It is right. about passing the test. So going back to my role as a parent, teaching my daughters to drive, it was about making sure they went, did proper lessons mm. so they don't get your bad habits, which are, there are a lot of. And and just, just letting them do their thing, but just giving quiet advice, you know, every now and then just... You know, just saying, oh, you know, you realise, you know, if you look in the mirrors there, just, you know, live in the mirrors was probably the one thing I was, best thing I was ever taught by my instructor. Okay. Live yeah. in the mirrors. Live in the, always know if you're going to break for a cat, don't know why you would, <laughs> um, know there isn't a truck right behind you. you. You just know there because you looked in your mirror 
two seconds before. Yeah, this is definitely something we could, we could talk about the ills of general Australian driving standards for two episodes nonstop. <laughs> yeah. But let's let's keep focused on you know yeah. perhaps the the positive instruction here. Well. <laughs> I can counter that with with a, with a bit of negative. My my dad was a sort of deeply psychotic man, and uh, <laughs> he taught my brother to drive. Makes and I, sense, I remember si- sitting in the back of the car, this this Renault Twenty TS, um, what car? Car the year nineteen seventy eight. And um, oh wow, my dad and my brother in the front punching each other in the head. My dad <laughs> leaning over, ripping the keys out of the ignition and throwing them out of the window. And finally, it, the culmination of this like uh, uh, teaching to drive experience was my dad becoming so frustrated with my brother's recalcitrance that he had uh, drove into a servo and smashed a Bowser down. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was at this point that oh I thought, God. I'm not going to get in the car with my dad. Um, I'm going to learn to drive in a... In a a proper driving school car and I passed my test first time and uh you know I was so stoked at passing my test I'm you know I'm a big uh, ape like confection and I was so hyped up that I, I tore the uh, interior um door handle off the car when I went to get it. <laughs> <Brilliant>. <laughs> I was a bit excited might not be, I mean, what was the car it could just have been it was a triumph for claim oh so it was the it was the car then it wasn't it yours it was always going to come <laughs> like, off that's a superhuman strength my first car was a triumph and I can tell you bits fell off that all the time and I'm not your stature yeah. <laughs> the way I learned to drive was uh quite simple I had lessons as well I had a very we we're talking about this before before we start recording Dave I had a very good instructor as well um Chris Brancher if you're listening Probably not. Might even be dead. Um, but it wouldn't be from his driving ability because he was a very good driver. But in addition to my lessons, my dad used to take me to a disused airfield up on the, the hills that I lived on called the Blackdown Hills. Um, it was an old wartime airstrip and it was deserted. And so you could go up there in any car at all and just go bananas. But he would obviously lose his mind if I was in his car driving like that. So what he would do, Andy, you, you're British, um, he would go up to, in the glove box, he would have a can of special brew, which oh. is a half liter of 9% lager Tramp I'm juice. certainly not condoning <laughs> drinking and or dry and driving because that's not what my dad did what he would do is he would get out of the car with the can of special brew and go for a walk across the airfield and allow me to go solo in his Audi Quattro and make all the mistakes I'm going to away from other traffic, away from a public road, in a relatively safe environment, and then once I'd used up all of the petrol or the tyres, uh, he would I would drive back over, pick up Dad, and we would drive home. And that's literally how I learned to drive. And what made a boy. All... I like him. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah, absolutely fantastic. Because it removed that stressfulness of, of the parent and sibling being in the car, or offspring being in the car at the same time, separated those two things and and it was perfect we'd get home and drive home we're still friends the the only the only kind of similar thing that happened to me was um my brother was in the RAF he was a pilot and he was doing a flying scholarship down in Compton Abbas and there was this huge stubble field at the end of the runway (laughs) and uh my dad got out and was sitting around watching my brother fly this uh um plane around in the sky and he said do you want to drive my car in this stubble field I was probably 16 years old and I thought this is a great idea so I drove it around and me being me I decided to see how fast it would go and, uh, <laughs> and, so and also I would at the same time I would buzz my dad like virtually like wing mirror him and, he, <laughs> <laughs> um, and he saw me coming with this demented look on my face and then he started doing that thing where instead of just standing there he was hopping from side to side and uh, <laughs> i tried to dodge the car oh, no. so i was into this uh, i was well into the throttle at this point i wasn't i wasn't getting out of the <laughs> throttle and uh I, I i just had to pick a line and, and i just missed him at about 80 90 miles an hour <laughs> so that's how i almost killed my dad yeah 
<laughs> Gentlemen, I'm very pleased that that is the point that I have to Can say. Can I just give everybody. one more bit of advice? For please do, because it's got to be better need, than that one. We need something sensible, yeah, please, yeah. David. It is about setting an example. I mean, I tend to maybe be a bit vocal when I drive, and if anyone in Melbourne probably is. If anyone's um, shared an office with you, Dave, we know you can be very vocal about anything, yeah, including driving. And I think of all the times, you know, when my daughters are a bit younger in the back of the car and there is me, you know. Yes. Um, one time, yeah, one time my daughter was like two and was swearing at cars because that's what me and her mum were doing. <laughs> <laughs> she, she's like, ooh, car, you know. And so Good just advice. set an example because my youngest daughter at the moment, she's worse than me and that's probably my fault. There you go. At least she's a good driver and that she can She thank, is. And that's and I was actually surprised how well they drove. So Gentlemen, thank you so much. Another awesome week of chat. Uh, anything that we've missed or anything that you've missed for that matter, um, head to the website, whichcar.com.au, where you'll also find links to our social media. You can catch up and keep in touch with us. And until next week, and when we amass more wonderful minds and personalities do stay safe out on the road especially given what we we're talking about today my name is daniel gardner this has been witch car weekly thank you so much